Heavenly Father, today it is an honor to be able to gather and to be the church. Lord, we thank you for everyone who is here, whether they've been here um, once, twice, a thousand times, Lord. There's nobody who is here on accident. Lord, I ask that you would be sending your Holy Spirit to be moving and turning our hearts towards you. That our hearts would be open, that our mouths would be full of praise. Lord, as we look to open your scripture today, ask that you would speak clearly. That you would move in our hearts the way in which you mean to move and that we would be receptive to that, that you would soften our hearts and open our ears. Lord Jesus, we give you this time. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we, last week we started a brand new sermon series um, entitled Misquoted. And the whole idea of that sermon series was to take some common Bible verses that like get quoted often, but maybe they're misunderstood and we don't quite understand them very well. And so last week we kind of talked about Jeremiah 29.11. It's a very popular verse, gets quoted very often. Um, and this week we're going to talk about a passage that I think kind of fits in with our sermon series, but if I'm honest with you, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> does a little bit. I think I do think that this, this uh, passage we're going to talk about, um, sometimes we miss the whole picture. I think that's maybe shifted in the last 10 years or so. I think uh, this passage has gotten better and better um, teaching. I think as people have kind of taught it, I think the bigger picture of the passage has become more clear. But I wanted to take a little bit of pastoral license, and I wanted to talk about this particular passage this Sunday because I thought it was timely. But I do think that there is something to this passage that even because it's a familiar passage that we might sometimes miss. We might be so familiar with this passage that we think, oh, I know exactly what this passage is saying. I, I know the whole picture. Well, I don't want us to, to assume we know the whole picture and to miss the deep truth that is held there or to miss the whole picture in general. But before I tell you what that passage is going to be, um, I'm going to do like a little bit of Bible. I'm going to tell you a little bit of Bible trivia, uh, which is a game that nobody ever wants to play with me. Um, but we're going to do, so like you've got your Bibles in your hand, right? And, and, um, and we're all so familiar with the, with the concept of saying, I give you a book and a chapter and a verse and you turn to that, right? Could you guys imagine if we didn't have chapters and verses, like trying to get you guys all to go to page 1,275 um, <laughs> and then like find the exact paragraph and word that I was looking at? Chapters and verses make it really easy for us to get to the same verse quickly, um, but they're not actually part of the original scripture. When people wrote this Bible, when people were writing it, they weren't stopping and and like numbering their sentences. They weren't doing that. 
Um, and so they were added in later as a way to kind of help us navigate the, navigate the Bible because it's just so big and it's a way to reference it. Um, and, but there's a long, long history. Um, I was looking into it because I'm a nerd. And, you know, it goes back to like, I think like the first century, there was like some texts that were, that were beginning to have different segments. They weren't numbering the verses yet, but they were breaking them up into chunks so that they were easier to find and to reference. And that's all good. But sometimes the way when we're reading a passage, we see, oh, it's a new chapter. That must mean that there's a new idea or it must mean that there's a new thought or something like that. We see the divisions in our Bible and that makes us think, oh, well, it's divided from the, what came before. Just kind of like in our uh, modern fiction books, you know, if we're reading it's chapter two, chapter three, it's a new chapter, something, the scene is changing, something new is happening. Well, that's not actually always true. Sometimes it is, but it's not always true. And then in addition to that is that a lot of our Bibles have little titles over top of the chapter that tell you what the chapter is going to be about. Well, those titles also aren't uh, original. They weren't labeling that. Those were all put in there for our benefit to help us reference and understand the Bible easily. And I think that's great. Um, But I do think that sometimes, every once in a while, it can lead us to think in a particular path that might lead us to miss something that's larger in the scripture, to miss a big idea or miss a nuance. So if you turn with me and you turn with me to Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at the passage today. And I think the passage we're looking at today is sometimes suffered from that. So if you look at passage uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 11, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your Bible app, or you can go to our website, like Ellen was saying, you can go to conduitministries.com, click on outdoor service, and the passage for today will also be on that website. If you go to chapter 15, verse 11 of the book of Luke, you'll see the beginning, you'll see the ta- table there, or the title most of your Bibles will say the parable of the prodigal son. My, my translation has the parable of the lost son, which I kind of like a little bit more. But that's a really familiar parable, right? But I think that that title, unfortunately, um, maybe predisposes us to read the passage in a particular way where we maybe miss the full scope of it. And so today, what I want to do is I want to talk about this passage, one, because I think it's timely for today, but two, I want to see if we can't perhaps not gloss over it. A lot of times, like this is one of the most well-known Bible passages in the entire Bible. Um, it's very well-known. And sometimes when things are familiar, we just kind of like, we go on autopilot. Everybody, anybody ever driven the work? And then, like, not remembered their commute or driven home, right? And you're just like, oh, gosh, did I, did I stop at that stoplight? Um, <laughs> right? Like, we've all been that. Like, we, the more familiar the thing is, the more we go into autopilot. And the same thing is with the Bible. When we come to a passage and you're like, 
Because like chances are, if, if, if you guys here have been in church for any amount of time, like any, you know, more than a handful of years, you've probably heard this passage preached. And so you might be like, Luke, I've heard this sermon. Right? I know what you're going to say. I'm like, yeah, but it's worth hearing again. Because I think it's a truth that is so timely. Like I was like, because I've, I've, I've taught on this passage before, like I'm familiar with it. And yesterday as I was looking over it, I was almost like, I was like, I think I'm going to cry as I'm just reading it. Because it is so timely. The truth in this passage is so, so real and so heavy still. So we're going to dive into this passage, but we're going to do like what we talked about last week. If you remember, um, last week I kind of introduced sort of like four steps to kind of doing a basic Bible study, right? There's three C's and an A. Does anybody remember the first C? Context. I heard somebody say context. So um, it's also on the website. So if you're looking there, you could find that. Um, (laughs) But... Uh, so the first one is context. So we always want to look at what's before and after the passage, get to kind of understand what it is that we're reading, understand how that passage is informed by what's before it. So rather than just diving into verse 11 of chapter 15, we should look back at the first couple verses of chapter 15 and see what we learn. So in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says that, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so we've got some different people involved in this story so far. First thing is it says, now the tax collectors. Now, the thing is, is tax collectors, like the Bible doesn't have anything categorically against um, the IRS um, as much as we would want that to, Uh, right? And so there's nothing categorically unlawful about the IRS. Um, But but what they're talking about here is this isn't just normal tax collectors. The way tax collectors worked in ancient Israel at that time was Israel was a subjugated people group. They were not ruling themselves independently. They were ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was collecting taxes from them. So it was like kind of like they're occupied. And Israel had like a long history of rebelling against their, you know, they rebelled against the Greeks and then they rebelled against the Romans. So they were always trying to kind of get their own independence. And so... The Romans hired tax collectors, but they didn't bring in Roman tax collectors. Instead, they hired other Jews to do the tax collecting for them. So if you were a tax collector, you were kind of working for the enemy a little bit. You were like doing tax collecting for the occupying force. But then in addition to that, the way that you made your money as a tax collector was to overcharge. So you'd come up to somebody's door and you say, you owe this much in taxes, and they couldn't argue with you. You're just like, well, I've got like an army soldier with me. He's, you know, you either give that to me or you don't. And then he would take some money off the top. And so if you were a tax collector, you were a thief and a traitor, right? Like, it's fair to say that they were not popular. Nobody liked them, uh, right? Um, still don't, somebody said. <laughs> and so tax collectors were these 
people who were on the outside. People didn't like to keep them around. And then here it's described that there's tax collectors and then there's sinners. There's the prostitutes. There are those who are the drunks, the people who are the like the untouchables, the unwanted, the people that no one liked to hang out with in polite society. And these are the people that Jesus is sitting down and having dinner with. These are the people who are he's sharing a table with. Right? And so he's associating with all of the people that good upstanding people wouldn't be caught with. And then there's the third part, there's the third people, or the, the next people, which is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are kind of like the religious people of the time. They would have been kind of like pastors of a sort. They would have memorized the Bible. They would be following the laws, the rules, the religious laws exactly the way they were supposed to done. They were probably standing there on the outside and they're just looking at Jesus sitting with all of these sinners and they're just like, you know, maybe they're even quoting Psalm 1 to each other and saying, you know, uh, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers. Like, like, what is this teacher doing? He's sitting with all of these sinners. Isn't that what the Bible says you're not supposed to do? Right? And they were all pointing fingers and saying, like, look, this guy cannot be a teacher of God because he's sitting with all of these people who we wouldn't be caught dead with. And so that's the space. That's exactly what's happening when Jesus begins to tell these three parables back to back. He tells two parables. First is that of the lost sheep, then of the lost coin, and then that of the lost son. Right? And so there's this theme of something being lost, one thing out of many being lost, being recovered and found, and then there being a celebration about that. So there's these three parables all fit together. But if we don't know who Jesus is telling the parables to, it becomes hard for us to understand why he's telling those parables or what his main point of those parables are. So we need that context before we can dive into the next C, which is content. So we're going to dive into that now, and we're going to look for ourselves at what this parable and what this story was and is. And that's in verse 11. And you can follow along as we kind of walk through this. And Jesus continued that there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. So there's, there's two sons, and a younger and an older. And I'm, I'm the oldest of five, right? And I will tell you that I think my youngest brother got off easy. Um, I think he got spoiled a little bit. Uh, and apparently things were the same in Bible times as they are now. Um, right? And so, like, there's, you've got the older son and you've got the younger son. And the younger son, you know, like, we can maybe put ourselves in his shoes a little bit. Maybe think about what was his experience. Okay, so he's the younger son. So in, in that culture, like, that meant he wasn't, he didn't get a lot of privilege necessarily. He was kind of, he wasn't going to get all of the honor that the oldest son was going to get. The oldest son was going to get the most amount of the inheritance. He would have had the most amount of authority to go and do business with his dad and for his dad. 
And so maybe he was always sitting in the shadow of his older brother, never able to really do as good as him or to measure up to him. Maybe he was always frustrated by the fact that he knew, no matter what, my inheritance is going to be smaller. Maybe, you know, he just wanted his freedom, right? Stop telling me what to do. I want to be independent. I want to be able to do things my own way. I, th- I stopped living underneath the shadow of maybe, maybe even a bossy older brother. I've never been that. Um, yeah, some of you guys, amen that. Um, right? But like, so this younger brother, the youngest son, is, is, is feeling this angst, and he decides to do this thing that would have been very unacceptable. He goes up to his dad, and he, and, and he says, says, Dad, I'd like you to give me my inheritance now. And while inheritance worked the same then as it does now, typically is given out after someone's dead. Well, his dad's not dead, but I want it now. Right? That's, that's pretty bold. Imagine that scene, the young son coming up, maybe at the dinner table. He kind of is like, Dad, how about you just give me my inheritance now? Silence that goes across the table. It's like everybody's looking at each other, watching the father. What's he going to say? Is he going to rip him a new one? Like, what, like what, what's he going to do? Is he going to kick him out? No, he, he, he gives the inheritance to him. Right? He says, I'm gonna says he gives him his inheritance. And so he divided his property between them. And then not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off on a for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. So he almost right away, almost without hesitation decides, all right, I'm going to sell off all the assets that I've got. I'm going to create all this liquid cash, and I'm going to go to this far-off country. I'm going to go to the place where I want to go, and I'm going to go live how I want to live, away from all my family, my relatives. Nobody's going to be able to tell me what I can or cannot do. No one's going to tell me how to live my life. I'm going to live my life the way I want to, and he does. And he goes and he lives and he spends, we don't, we're not told necessarily how long, it may have, may have been like a year or two, where he just lived off of his wealth. He kind of, there was not a party he did not go to, there was not an experience he denied himself. He lived a wild life, like it says. And he went and did that for as long as he could. And then he's finally tasting that freedom. All of it's his. All the things that he could have wanted, he, he has access to. He's no longer underneath the control of his dad or his brother. And then he runs out of cash. And then to make things worse, a famine hits the land. So he's in a foreign country, no family, no friends. And he spent all of his money. And he's out of cash and a recession hits. The stock market crashes. And he doesn't have any money. He doesn't have it. It's not a good job market. Right? And so he cases the first job he can get, and that's working for a pig farmer. So he's feeding pigs. And in doing so, 
he finds himself envying the food that he's giving the pigs. There's like a day he's like taking the food out to the pigs and he's tossing it to them. And he's like, that looks tasty because I'm that hungry. That's hungry, right? He's in like, and so he's, and pigs would have been also culturally taboo. Ceremonially taboo. The pigs were an animal that God's people were supposed to avoid, to not touch. They were considered unclean, and if you had any interaction with them, you would have had to be go through a purifying process before you could come back into the temple. And so he's he's at a low spot. He's doing a job that would not have been acceptable in his hometown. He has no money to his name. He's starving. Nobody's giving him any food. He doesn't have any any support, doesn't have any friends. He's completely alone. All of the freedom that he could have had and he wanted came with the price of also being completely alone. And then he finds himself there. And then that is when he has this realization. Says that he comes to his senses. In verse 17, he says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out to go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and go back to my father and say, Oh, sorry, and say, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Called your son, called your son, called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. We can see that, right? Like we can almost see him sloshing the pig food into the pen. And he's just covered in filth and he probably smells like the pigs too. And he just has this like light bulb. This moment where he just kind of wakes up all of a sudden. And he's just like, what am I doing? How did I get here? How did I find myself in such awful circumstances? I've come to such a low, I've hit my rock bottom. How could I have done this? And why am I here? I could go home. If I were to go home, like, like I can't, like, there's no way my dad will ever be able to let me back in the house as a son. No way. But, but maybe I can come back and I can be a servant. Maybe I can come back and I can put food for, I can feed food to, to my dad's animals. Because if I do that, at least that will, um, I'll get fed there. It's better than being here. It's better than being in this place in which I find myself. And so he almost has this like clarity of mind. And we know what that's like when we've had the realization when we kind of just wake up and we know what we got to do. I just kind of imagine him just dropping everything because he didn't really have anything and just heading home, just walking away from his job and going and marching himself home as quick as he can. What was that journey like, I wonder? Right? Like how many times did he in his head say over and over again and play out that conversation with his dad? okay, this is how I'm going to say it. This is how I'm going to say it. I'm going to come up to my dad. I'm going to say, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Please make me like a hired hand. Like how many times did he rehearse that? 
How many times was he thinking about, this is how I, this is, oh, is my dad, what, what's the, you know, he played out all the different scenarios of how that conversation could unfold. Maybe his dad will let him be a hired hand. Maybe his dad will just tell him to turn around. Or maybe his dad won't even come out of the tent to see him. How many different scenarios did he play out in his head? How many times on his trip home from that far country did he stop and think about turning around and say, you know what, this is cr- I can't, I can't do this. What did it look like when he got near to town? Did he walk down through Main Street or did he try and sneak in through the back way so that he wouldn't see anybody that he knew? No neighbors, no friends, nobody that would recognize him and where he had been and what he looked like now. What did it look like as he kind of came up down the main drag as he came to the edge of his father's property, maybe where like the long driveway meets the road? And he's standing there, and he's feeling the weight. He knows that what he had done all that time ago was an awful thing to do, and that he's the only one to blame for his own problems. And he feels that guilt and that shame just bear down on him. Maybe he doesn't feel like he can take another step forward because to to risk the possibility of his dad rejecting him, but he can't turn back around now because where's he going to go? He doesn't have anywhere to go. And he finds himself stuck. Maybe he's, maybe he's kind of anxiously twisting and wringing his hands. Maybe he's looking down at his feet, not really sure what to do with himself. But then he, he looks up And he sees what looks like someone sprinting from the house. Like, why is is someone running? And as they get closer, he can see their clothes kind of whipping back behind them in the wind as this this man, could could it be his father who's running towards him at full sprint? This old, respected man running like a kid through the property and the son's probably standing there. I imagine he wouldn't know what to do. Why is his dad running? Is his dad going to hit him, going to kick him off the property? What's, what's going on? And he doesn't know what to do and he just stands there. And before he knows it, his father has run up and wrapped his arms around him and is holding him in an embrace and kissing him. And saying, my son has come home. And the son, like, like so many times, like he had, he had practiced it. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I do not deserve to be your son. Let me be a hired hand. And what does the father say in response to that? Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. He completely ignores what the son says and says, you're my son. 
You were lost and you are found. You were dead and you are alive. Let me clothe you in the finest things I have. Let us kill the finest animal we have on the farm. Let us have the best feast we've had because you're home finally. What a powerful picture of a father's love for a son. A son that wasn't deserving of that love or of a welcome home like that, but got it anyways because the father had so much grace and love for him. How undignified of this father to just run. The moment he saw his son on the edge of the property, he could but restrain himself and he sprinted to him. That's powerful. When we begin to think about that's the heart of God, that's who God's, what, that's his heartbeat for us. That begins to change and shift the way that we see God. Now, if this was the parable only of the one lost son, the one prodigal son, that would be pretty much the end of the story. But it's not. We still have several verses left to go. It's why I think sometimes this passage is maybe cut short. It's because we've always thought of it as the story of the lost son. I think it's maybe better titled the parable of the two lost sons. And let's look at why I think that in the next couple of verses. So this party begins to happen. You can just imagine the bustling that's going around as he calls his wife, as he gets the servants, as they're putting out the tables, they're putting out the fine silverware, they're roasting the meat, they're getting everything prepared, and they're beginning to play some music, and they're beginning to just eat things as it comes out the kitchen, and they're having this party. It says, meanwhile, in verse 25, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He was out working, and he begins to come home to maybe for a break or something, and he's like, what is going on? It's not a feast day. It's not a holiday. Why isn't everybody working? What's going on? So he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? And the servant tells him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. We've been talking about the younger son. Let's think about the older son for a little bit. He stayed home. He did all the right things, right? He, he, he was out in the field working. He honored his father. He probably had been a really good eldest son, doing all the things that was expected of him. And here is the younger son who never did what he was told, was always brash, always running away, and had disrespected his father, taken the family inheritance and squandered it. And he's back and he just gets a party? Like, he shouldn't, 
Like he should be turned away. He should be treated as someone who is not even, even family anymore. We can't trust him anymore. He's just going to come around and use us again. He's just going to take what he can get and leave again. What are these, these maybe the things that the older brother's thinking? All of the reasons why, why that younger brother doesn't deserve what he's getting. Maybe, maybe the older brother should be getting that party. Besides, he's the one who's been faithful, right? He's the one who's been doing it. And he's sitting out there and he's walking around. You can just see him stewing, just furious. And he's just like, I'll show them. I'm not going to come in. I'm going to refuse to acknowledge my younger brother being here. And so the father goes out to him and pleaded with him in verse 29. But he answered his father. He said, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Here, just the venom in that refuses to call him his brother. I've been slaving for you, he says. I've never disobeyed you. I've always done everything. And you've never celebrated me like that. And then my son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so we see this picture, not of, not of two sons, not of one son who had gone away and returned, but of two sons, both of them lacking relationship with the father. Because the older son had stayed, but he describes himself more as a servant or a slave and not like a son. He says, I was always doing everything you told me to do. I was like, I slaved for you, is what it says. Well, obviously, he didn't have a relationship with his dad that was like a father and son. And so one son was physically removed and didn't have a relationship with his father. And then the other son was physically present, but didn't have a relationship with his father. I, as I think about this story, I kind of like to do a little bit of imagining. I have an active imagination. I like to imagine that like, the, the kind of father who is described here in this story is the father who would I feel like he's the kind of father who would have left an empty chair at the dinner table every night for his son while he was away. Always a reminder that his son wasn't there, always hoping that that night his son would return home. Well, now that chair's full because the younger son has returned, but now there's another empty ta- chair at that table, right? The chair of the older son who refuses to come in and sit down and eat. And this, I think, is the, the truth of this passage in that our loving Father has forgiveness 
and a seat at the table waiting for all of us. Right? Because that's the, remember, sitting at a table, a feast, someone sitting down at the table. Isn't that where we started? Christ sitting with all of the people that the Pharisees would refuse to sit with. And so now we begin to see that this parable at the end of these three parables has brought it all to full circle. And it said, don't you see that you are the stubborn older brother who is refusing to come in and sit down? There is a chair for you here too. And so the question that I think is helpful for us to wrestle with is which of those two sons are we? Or do we tend to be like? Are we like the younger son? Are you like the younger son? Where you don't feel like you maybe ever belong in church. Where if people were to really know all the things, would anybody actually like be comfortable with me being here? They're actually like, like Jesus like, probably like can't forgive all of the things that I've gone through or I've done or have happened to me, right? We bear this inevitable, this large boulder of shame and guilt. Or are we like the older brother, the older son, where perhaps we feel prideful at how we've lived our life, done things pretty good. Everybody else doesn't have it together, but we seem to have it pretty get together. I mean, as together as it maybe publicly looks, we're really good at putting on a face if we're the older brother. Really good at having the appearances of looking like we're doing it right, that it's all working out, but as long as nobody knows what we've just managed to keep into maybe a closet somewhere. But that doesn't matter. We've got it together. We've maybe even earned God to treat us right. right? God, like the good things, the blessings that happen in my life, like I've earned those. Like I, I have a nice life because I've worked hard for it. It doesn't have anything to do with grace or a or God's like gift or blessing. Like these are things I earned. These are things I deserve. I actually deserve to be treated well by God and by other people because I'm a good person. Those are two lies on different ends of the spectrum, but the result is the same. One lie is a lie that God can never accept us because we are so awful. And then the other lie is we're so great that we don't need God. And both of them result in us being disconnected from the love of the Father. Both of them result in us living a life disconnected from relationship and not sitting at the table. Place of isolation. Either we're out in the far country with all of our freedom and all of our choices, but stuck in a pig pen, isolated from all help and from all care and family. Or we're standing outside the tent 
bitter and angry because nobody will recognize how good we are. Both are alone. Both are disconnected from the love of the Father. But the solution is the same. It's experiencing the grace of God and the undeserved love and favor that God the Father has for each of us. So I don't know which of the two of those, which of those two you maybe find yourself in. But my prayer today is that you that you would maybe stop hesitating outside the tent or maybe stop hesitating at the edge of the property and take a step forward and let the Father run and embrace you. That the Father, let the Father wrap his arms around you and say, you are my daughter, you are my son. You were lost and now you are found. That is the essence of the gospel. That is the essence of what we strive to be about, to talk about, and it's something we need to hear every day. Because I'm not just someone, I, I'm not, not even, I'm not even someone who's got it together. I'm not even, I'm not my mistakes, I'm not even my good things that I do. I'm a child of God. Before I am a parent, before I am a husband, a father, before I'm anything, my job title, my accolades, the things that I've done, the things that I wish I could take back, my shame, my mistakes, I'm not any of those things. Rather, I'm a daughter, I'm a son of a loving father who has nothing for me but grace and an embrace. Let's take a moment and let's, um, let's spend some time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of this story, for the picture of this story. Lord, I ask that you would be working in our hearts, that you would no longer let us be stuck where we're at. Lord, help us to lift up our eyes and see that you are running full sprint towards us. That you would leave the 99 for the one. That you celebrate when we turn back towards you. That your heart is gladdened when we return to you, when we celebrate when we pursue you. Jesus, I pray that you would banish sin, that you would banish shame and guilt from our hearts. Lord, that you would not keep anyone from coming to you. Lord, that you would draw them close. Lord, I pray that you would banish pride, 
the sin of self-righteousness, or that you would humble us, that you would allow us to let down the mask of perfection and to admit that we need you, that we cannot do it on the, our own, and that if everyone could actually see the inside of us, we would find that we're much more like the younger brother than we want to admit. Lord, help us all to draw close to you. Help us all to be defined by the gospel and not by everything else. Lord, I ask that you wouldn't let anyone leave here today who you've called to come closer to yourself without them taking that next step. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make that so.